Hey Kyle, this is Robert tuning in from Uppsala, Sweden. Uh, I'm a molecular biologist and surfer, and I really enjoy listening to your podcast with your great guests and very interesting conversations. Just wanted to say hi and thanks and keep up the great work. Smiles and thumbs up. Thank you, Robert. I'm coming to all of you from Santa Cruz, California on a warm, sunny day with an ice-cold cup of coffee in my hand. And this conversation is with Kyle Kingsbury. Kyle is a retired UFC fighter and is now the director of human optimization at Onnit. The guys from Onnit were nice enough to have me out to their headquarters in Austin, Texas, and I had a chance to be on Kyle's podcast, which he hosts, which is called the Onnit Podcast, and then we flipped it around, and he was a guest on mine. I spent five days straight with the guy. We did everything from going to the Houston Exploratorium to dancing our faces off at a super fun party, and... uh He's just a solid dude. I wasn't sure if we would have a lot in common when we met because he comes from the MMA world and I'm about as cliche of a California surfer as you could get. But um, he's just he's great. He's got a good sense of humor. Um, He during his the final weigh ins of his last UFC fight, he walked into the room, huge press conference, and he dropped his shorts and he was wearing pink legalized gay underwear to stand in solidarity with the lgbt lgbt community um and that's fucking cool that's so cool growing up in the surf community i know how much homophobia is still around and i would imagine that it's the same in the mma world And uh, that's how things change. You know, it's by people like Kyle standing up for what is right. And, you know, if you need to think for just a second about what it is like to be gay, um, just flip the world upside down for one second right now and imagine um, that you are straight and it is only acceptable to be gay. Right. So every woman that you want to have a relationship with, I'm talking to the guys here, you have to keep in secret Um, and your family and your friends will judge you and make fun of you and sometimes even try to hurt you if you come out and say, hey, I like women Um, and you need to live in a world where you uh to be accepted in a lot of circles would have to date another man, even though you weren't attracted to them. You know, imagine what that would be like. Well, that is what it's like for a lot of gay people. Um, and again, thanks to people like Kyle, um, it's changing rapidly. So that's, that's fucking cool. Mad respect for, uh, for him. And, I'll tell you one thing, I guarantee you, I guarantee you that right now there is a top level pro surfer and a top level UFC fighter who are gay and they are afraid to come out. I guarantee you. And in 15 years, you're going to hear about it. We still have a long way to go. And uh, thanks to people like Kyle, 
who speaks up on a range of issues, whether it's gay rights or um, the legalization of psychedelics or just open thought, critical thinking in general, uh, you know, there is a tsunami of change happening right now. And I think that it's largely due to the podcast world. So um, happy to know Kyle, happy to call him my friend. And before I get going, I want to thank um, Mahan and Dan for donating to the podcast this week on Patreon. If you feel inspired to donate, you can click the link below Kyle's description in this podcast, or you can head over to my website, kyle.surf, and click the link on Patreon. Even the equivalent of buying me a cup of coffee every month makes a big difference. So check out Kyle's podcast, The Onnit Podcast. Get in touch with him on Instagram. And without further ado, please welcome to the show, Kyle Kingsbury. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. It's not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. The tables have turned, I see. <laughs> they certainly have, they even see. though our chair's in the same spot. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it's a different podcast. Um, I want to ask you about Thailand. We were digging into that a little bit yesterday. When did you go to Thailand first? I think 2010. I went with my old man for 17 days. We stayed at Tiger Muay Thai. And uh, actually, a teammate of mine, Mike Swick, used to go out there quite a bit. So he was telling me, like, you got to go. It's amazing. Your, your Muay Thai game will come up quite a bit. And I was first starting the UFC. It really didn't have skill a skill set anywhere, you know, but I liked Muay Thai. So going out there, we'd train twice a day. Everything was comped by Tiger because I was going to teach a seminar on, uh, I forget what it was. I think it was nutrition mixed with... Um, something to do with MMA because they were primarily just striking, you know? And um, we get to train twice a day together, each super cheap food, you know, and we, I fucking love Thai food. My, my brother-in-law is Thai and he has a Thai restaurant out in uh, Mountain View, California, Emerin. If you're, if you're in the Bay, go to Emerin Thai restaurant in Mountain View on Castro. But um, yeah, it was, a, it was a, just an amazing experience. And plus that was also a time where, because I was training normally in camps, I'm, I'd eat super clean, no alcohol, meditate, read a lot, not watch a lot of TV, then out of camp, pedal to the metal with all the bad drugs, the bad food, no meditation, the shitty TV, whatever I could do to uh, try to reward myself incorrectly for having been a good boy for eight weeks. Sure. So this was like one of the first times I was out of fight camp, but I realized very quickly because of the humidity and the heat, if I drank, I wouldn't be able to train hard the next day. And I was learning so much so quickly that I was like, I only drank once when I was there, you know? And then it's, it's, it's funny now. Cause I look back on that and I've had friends that go to Thailand and they're like, did you get the happy tea? And I'm like, no, what's, what's that? What's the happy tea? And they're like, oh, you can go anywhere in Thailand and ask for happy tea and they'll give you psilocybin mushroom tea. And I was like, get the fuck out. Are you serious? Like, what do you mean anywhere? And they're like, maybe not in Bangkok and the major cities, but 
Yeah, they the do that in Bali as well. You can yeah. go and get uh, mushroom milkshakes. I can add that to the list of places to see now. I went, <laughs> my brother and I ate, uh, drank mushroom milkshakes and went to the Bali water park once. The slides were very steep. That sounds <laughs> incredible. There's there's one water park in Bali called, uh, or one ride called the Climax, where you stand on this trap door and it goes three, two, one and the trap door falls out beneath you and you go vertically down this tube and it shoots you upside down and out it's highly exciting after the Damn. milkshakes yeah that sounds incredible um had you traveled much before you went to thailand you know i mean basic places i think i'd been to mexico a number of times my mom has a timeshare in puerto vallarta so we'd been there i mean i've probably been there a dozen times now um I think in that, at that point in time, I hadn't been to many places, you know, I was still relatively new in the UFCs before I started doing a lot of tours for the troops with, uh, which is where I went, met my wife. Um, that's really where I got to see the world was doing tours for the troops, you know, and then obviously I got to fight in, uh, not obviously your listeners probably don't know who the fuck I am or who I, where I fought, but I got to fight in Nottingham, England, which was incredible. We, we went through Sherwood forest and looked at all the the Robin Hood statues and shit like that. I meditated under the major oak, which is this fucking giant oak tree, the base of which is bigger than this room probably. And um, I enjoyed Nottingham more than I did London. You know, when I was in London, my face was smashed from the fight and I'm gluten intolerant. So, you know, it was I was borderline unflyable, which meant that I either had to stay in London until my eye healed for months and then fly back or go back on a boat. Wait, gluten, explain this to me. How does that so, work? So if you get an orbital blowout fracture, the, because there's fluids and stuff and the, how it impacts the brain, sometimes they don't let you travel through air. Now I was right on the cusp and they were like, look, you know, we scanned your brain. We might be able to give you some anti-inflammatories. And I said, cool. Now I'm gluten intolerant and that causes systemic inflammation. So I knew I couldn't have beer or gluten foods, right? So that's like fucking beef Wellington, like pretty much anything that I would want to eat in England. Yeah. And you, all the fucking beers you re- I couldn't have. You realize the diversity of foods at home when you travel to some of these places. Yeah. And, and, and I'd been so looking forward to <laughs> you that. You eat beef and, and French fries. <laughs> I knew, I knew when the fight was over, I could eat whatever I wanted. Yeah. You know, that was my mindset then. And, uh, it just, it was doubly disappointing to come off a loss to have my face, face, fractured into a million pieces and then also not be able to eat that shit. But I equally thankful that I could fly home. Do you feel like when you started working with the troops, and I'd love to learn more about this, you were able to travel in a new way, maybe like more meandering, more able to more fully take in your surroundings? Yes and no. There were some places where we would, you know, like in Iraq, we're not going out on the town. You know, you get to the base, that's where you're fucking staying. You don't, there's no, whatever green zone you're in, that's it. Like there's no, you know, I think I'm going to go out for a little while later. It's like, no, 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 you're, you're with a chaperone the whole time, that kind of thing. There were other places, I mean, we did a tour in Europe and got to go to a, a few different bases in Germany. And I think I've done two tours to Europe. That was one of my favorite places. Germany is fucking incredible. I love the food. Um, obviously the beer is great, but it's such a beautiful landscape, you know, like driving through, we had a tour bus. What does um, it look like? I've never been to Germany. Rolling green hills. 
I mean, it's cloudy and, and, and covered quite a bit, but it's, it's gorgeous. It's fucking beautiful there. Um, went to Brussels, Belgium, uh, Southern tip of the Netherlands, you know, a lot of really out there places that aren't too common. And then, you know, hit Paris to go to the, uh, the embassy and things like that. Paris, Paris was unfortunately, you know, <laughs> at least in my experience, was a lot like, uh, you know, what Americans bitch and complain about. Like, no one will talk to you. They don't like us there, that kind of thing. And certainly we looked the part. I mean, we I was with Chris Lieben, who has full arm sleeves and red hair, Ed Herman. You know, we looked like um, either a team of UFC fighters or some type of death metal band. And we would hear French people speaking English to one another and say, hey, you know, we're looking to get to the Louvre. Can you show or can you tell us where this place is? And they wouldn't even look at us and just start speaking French. And I'm like, finally, I fucking lost. I'm like, listen, guy, if a fucking Chinese guy comes up to me and says something in Chinese, I'm at least going to look him in the face and say, I don't speak Chinese in English. You know, like, so he has some type of understanding. Like, I acknowledge what you're saying. I have no clue what you're saying. I I've already heard you speak English right now. I wonder you know? what you represented to them. Yeah. And that's another thing, you know, you were just talking about that on the on it podcast from what your mom gave you, like this idea of you represent something everywhere you go in the world, you know, whether that's here or, or abroad. And, uh, a lot of commanding officers would let us know, like you're representatives of our country, you know, do us well. And so some people would take that to heart and some people were there to fucking have a good time. And it didn't, it didn't necessarily matter. And I'm not going to name names, but, um, I thought about that. And then I also thought, you know, going back to Thailand, I forget where we were in Phuket, but there was a, you know, there's a lot of Australians there because it's very close. And I remember looking at some of the, and I've got plenty of Aussie friends, so please don't take this wrong. But I looked at the Aussies as like, you guys are as loud and as arrogant and as obnoxious as Americans. And it was funny to me, right? I was like, that's fucking hilarious. But nobody hated the Aussies, you know, like Bush was in power. So there was a lot of people that were like, oh, my God, I had girls literally look at me in the face and say, you're American and just turn and walk away. And I just look at my dad and we'd fucking die laughing because it's funny, you know, but um, yeah, asking that just sucks, you know, like that sucks to have that it does thing suck. attached to you. Yeah. You know? When you are so closely tied to the government that is that you don't feel like you represent, but other countries think that you represent. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, um, there's a vice story that, that Shade Smith did on, um, the Mormon is a Mormon community in Mexico. Uh, and they were kind of like fighting off the, the drug cartels. Um, and it was Mitt Romney's family that lived down there. And there was a line in the film where, where he said, you know, I think that we should legalize, drugs in the u.s because it's what's creating this war and when the u.s coughs mexico gets the cold and i think that that's similar with a lot of these countries when the u.s uh implements a certain policy whether it's a trade agreement or a war you know other countries really are really affected by it um and i would imagine too that like growing up or traveling looking the way that you look you extra represent something to people. Yeah, that's a funny, a funny thing too, because you know, I, when I played defensive line at ASU, I was very small. I was much bigger than I am now. I weighed 265. I was still small, 
compared to the guys that I played with and certainly against the guys on the offensive line that had another 100 pounds on me. In fighting, I fought my first fight, nine fights professionally as a heavyweight, as a small heavyweight, 235 pounds. Then I was big for a light heavyweight, but I still trained with fucking actual heavyweights. So I've never felt big around any of these people, but it's all situational. You know, I, I ran a 50K ultra and they were like, oh my God, did you they asked my wife, they're like, did you see that fucking bodybuilder running with his shirt off? And <laughs> <laughs> just like the body bodybuilder. Yeah. Like, That's my husband. He fought, he's, he used to be a fighter. He's not a bodybuilder, you know, but I'm a giant compared to ultra marathoners, you know? And uh, it reminds me of this, this ayahuasca ceremony I did where I went to the bathroom and, um, you know, I, you need help in situations like that. So I had a lady walk me there and she was walking me back arm in arm. And another woman was coming to the bathroom and we're fucking balls deep, like mid ceremony, but it's a day. It's a walking day, is a big task exactly, at this point. It's a very big task. And she, she was walking and she was looking at the ground to see where her feet were going and her head came up and she was like, oh, the Hulk, it's the Hulk. And she was dead serious. And I was like, I don't know. Maybe you're seeing you me as like, the Hulk. <laughs> Hulk smash and just fucking crush the ground. No, but I just, I burst out laughing at it. You know, you try to have the noble silence and not be uh, uh, disruptive or, or, you know, draw people out of their own experience. But it was too hard not to laugh. Like I fucking, I cried. I laughed so hard. And then later she was like, you really were the Hulk. You really were. And I was like, okay, that's cool that you saw me as the Hulk. She's like, yeah. you're huge. And I was like, no, I'm not that big. But <laughs> I'm picturing you getting into a little tuk-tuk in Thailand and hitting your head on the roof as you motor away in this little th <laughs> three-wheeled motorbike. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, is that strange for you? Like, I would imagine that a lot of people are intimidated by you when you first meet them. And I've had a chance to get to know you over the last few days like you're a really nice guy you're a sweetheart when people get to know you but is that weird like that kind of you know I don't I don't get it all the time I mean some people like there's there I can tell if, if it's affecting somebody by their posture or the, the words that come out of their mouth you know and it's usually it's usually with men more than women like um you know, girls might flirt, be flirty and smile and be like, you're so big and you know, that kind of bullshit. And it's like, oh, thank you. But guys will be like, you know, they'll try to stand up real tall and pull their shoulders back and be like, what's up, bro? You know, like their voice gets like two octaves <laughs> deeper. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, you know, I agree with you. It's the same, same deal, man. Yeah. Totally, yeah. Yeah. I don't cry, work out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or even in like stories, just that you're like having like a general conversation and you can tell, um, it's maybe not the need for, um, what am I looking for here? Some people have a need for, not for attention, but for validation. Right. And I don't necessarily think that's the case all the time. I think sometimes it's just like the need to, to be on your level. Like I, like they think highly, highly of me higher than I would hold myself in a light. And so they want to, mention everything they've accomplished in life. And I find that very odd. It sticks out to me that somebody would list their accomplishments in a fucking casual conversation. Cause it's like, I'm not right. talking about anything I've done or haven't done. I mean, I've got my ass kicked and almost as many times right. as I've, as I've dished out an ass kicking, you know? So I like, I've certainly wasn't a champion when I fought or anything of that nature. Um, and that's humbling and beautiful and, and amazing at the same time. But, but yeah, it's like, we're not, we're, where did this come up? We're not going through the accolades here, but I think that's an issue for some men when they come across a guy that looks the part they want to, they want to impress. They want to, they want to hold themselves in the same light. Yeah. It's, I, I think 
kind of goes back to just being okay with knowing what you know and don't know and not knowing what you don't know. I, one of the best pieces of advice I ever received was the, the best thing that you can say if you don't know something or if you don't understand something is raise your hand and say, I don't know what you just said. I don't know what you're talking about. Can you teach me? And that is how you uh, uh, paradoxically come off as intelligent, right? Because people are like, oh, you, yeah, sure, I'd be happy to teach you. Rather than be like, oh, yeah, you know, I fought professionally. <laughs> Ron Burgundy, <laughs> jazz flute, I'm unprepared. Let me show you all of my, my accolades, right? But no, like, no, no, okay, if you insist. <laughs> right. But um, it's so common, and I would imagine that, it, it, you know, in your position now working at Onnit, which is a fast growing company, very successful, people are constantly kind of trying to fawn. It's either like fawning over you or or legitimizing themselves. We're the in hot front chick at prom that everyone wants to fuck. Yeah. And it's funny because it's like I've never been wooed or had people swoon over me. Uh, even being a handsome man, that's just never been the case at ASU. There's plenty of good looking guys, that kind of shit. But in the business world, I'm first now getting a taste of that. And I've only, I've been with on it for about nine months, but um, yeah, we went to the supplement conference in New Jersey because, you know, I, one of the things I do here is work in product development on designing new products and supplements and food products and things like that. And so you go there and it's a trade show and it's people that have put in a lot of work on particular products. They have the science that backs it. It's safe. It's got grass status and it's, now they want to distribute that to a bigger name company that can actually move that to the world. And so we'll go there and piece together different things that we like and put them into a product that is better than just any one thing by itself. Like the 90% of our products here and on it are, you know, things that are science backed that we like, and we combine that with other things that are science backed that we like to create something new. So we're there and I put on uh, an on it shirt cause I had on it shirts and want to represent and uh, my good buddy, Eric, uh, who's the VP of sales for and he was like, whoa, 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 buddy. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You got to take that off. And I was like, what do you mean? Do you take off my shirt? And he's like, you don't understand. Everyone here is going to be fighting to talk to us just from the fucking tech, just from the lanyard that says on it. So you got to be a little bit more discreet than that. And then we'll be able to talk to the people we want to when we want to, and we won't have to be fighting people off. And uh, it's crazy. I felt the same way at Paleo FX. I got to speak at Paleo FX this year as an employee of Onnit versus last year where I was just running my own podcast that hadn't launched a single episode at that point and walking around looking for potential sponsors, looking for cool shit, just seeing what the event was about, trying to meet people, you know? Like it turned uh, 180 degrees from last year to this year. Yeah, that's strange. How do you do you maintain how do you not let it go to your head well i just i take it for what it is number one i'm not on it uh, i'm a piece of that you know um and it's a cool thing to be a part of you know i have appreciation for it too like there's it's cool that everyone is this down and everyone is this complimentary and everyone sees what's going on here because i see it from the inside but when people recognize that from the outside it's like yeah man we're on to something we're we're it's more than a supplement company. It's more than a fitness company that makes cool fucking kettlebells and shit like that. Like we're a movement towards living every day a little bit better than we did the day before. And that includes all the things, you know, psychedelics. Obviously, we can't sell those in the U.S. or sell those anywhere for that matter. But uh, the mindset that we have on plant medicines and furthering our and exploring our own consciousness 
and practices that everyone can use like flotation and meditation and breath work and cold therapy. I think those are things that, you know, you really have to hit the lowest common denominator with like something that everyone can use. that's impactful and meaningful that changes their lives. That's the shit that we're about. And I get to be a guinea pig for all that stuff. So yeah. And it's something that you're working hard for and feels good to represent. Mm -hmm. It's not like a movie you played in five years ago where like, Oh, I loved you in the Hulk. And you're mm -hmm. like, ah, I'm not that guy anymore. I would imagine yeah. that that's why it's so difficult for famous actors because people love <laughs> them for someone they're not. Dude, I saw, I saw, I, for, I forget the guy's name. Maybe you can pull it up for me, Ryan. The guy who played Biff Tannen in, uh, in uh, Back to the Future. Yeah. So he has great, McFly! he has great, great comedy, yeah. great comedy. So we saw him at San Jose Improv and he was fucking hilarious. Thomas Elf Wilson. We see him, we see him there and, um, you know, you come out, uh, we waited to take a photo with the guy and there's a little bit of a line. I didn't realize how far the line had moved up and on the, the little table there, he has photos you can buy that he'll sign for you. And one of them's of Mad Dog Tannen from fucking Back to the Future 3 when they go back, back, in time, yeah. back to the old West, right? So I'm like, nobody calls me Mad Dog. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, yeah, I haven't heard that one before. And he had like this fucking grimace on his face. And I was like, oh, sorry, oh. Mad Dog. <laughs> I felt like such a douche. It was great though. Cause I was like, I'm fucking standing two feet from the, from the guy. I thought we had like 20 minutes before we were going to see him. He has the best line in back to the future one. He's like, is he, he, he crashes McFly's car, right? He goes, McFly, what's up with your car? I see, look at my shirt. I got beer all over myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a great film. Um, when you grew up in San Jose, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Cupertino and Sunnyvale, I guess, specifically. Would you say that your community was a kind of like no one above, no one below community? Or would you say that there was that kind of like social reaching like i i experience it now oscillating between santa cruz and los angeles which are very different communities santa cruz specifically the surf community is one where like you could go be world champ like for uh luke rockhold is uh -huh. is uh, from santa cruz and we grew up surfing and skating together and it doesn't matter what he's done when he goes out and surfs in the lineup he's still just Luke. He still sucks. So he's still, he's still, <laughs> Matt, he's still Matt Rockhold's little brother who's mm -hmm. a pro surfer. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't matter if you become a, a heroin addict, you know, people will still take you back. And I think that this has a positive and a negative to it. You know, this, there is this kind of tight knit community and, and bond that you don't see in a place like LA where there's, there's this kind of social reaching. I think that the, the deleterious effect is that people can really fuck up their lives and still get taken back. You know, like it's a lot less okay to be beating people up on the weekends at bars when you're 35 than when it is when you're a kid, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I struggle with it because I, yeah, I go back and forth between LA, which is very much this, like if there is a place where people look at you and see you as a stepping stone to someone else, that is the place, you know? And I think that, the, the dichotomy between those two situations growing up can really shape us. Um, so what was it like where you grew up? Well, I don't think, you know, it's, it's funny cause it was, it was different, you know, like as far as like in Sunnyvale, it hadn't really blown up as a tech spot. I think Yahoo was there. Um, now it's 
absurdly priced to live there because that new Apple building is going up right on the on the corner of Homestead and Wolf. So right on the right on the cusp of Cupertino, Sunnyvale. A lot of Sunnyvale is being influenced by that. But I mean, as far as like how people treat and shit like that, there's I mean, in that peninsula of the Bay, there's so much going on. There's so many fucking big wigs and everyone's hot shit. You just I mean, it's a joke of a show, Silicon Valley on HBO, but there's fucking a lot of parallels. You know, there are a lot of parallels. And, uh, you know, like like Tim Ferriss was talking about before he moved out here to Austin. He listed four reasons to move from the Bay Area, one being cost of living and, and a few others. And then the pretentious people being one. And I'm like, that's a fucking good. That's a real reason. You know, like like I'm not saying people in the Bay are bad. There's there's I love my family still lives there. I fucking all my friends I grew up with live there. There's amazing people in the Bay Area. But you know, you can get a little pretentious. People think that they're hot shit because they're trying to let the world know in a sea of people that are all successful. Like, hey, I'm different. I'm better than you. I did this thing that's fucking amazing. Let me tell you why. Everyone's got right? their story. Yeah, man. And that gets fucking old quick. On the reverse of that, on from a fighting standpoint, you know, yeah, I made it to the UFC. I fought for uh, six years in the UFC. But at the place I was training at, Cain Velasquez became heavyweight champ. Daniel Cormier became light heavyweight champ. Luke Rockhold became middleweight champ. Khabib just became lightweight champ. Like, I'm nobody compared to those guys, you know? And and not to say that those guys are Bay Area locals. A lot of them came from different places. But, um, you know, we do a good job of celebrating the, the sports guys that do really well. And I think, you know, you see that with how many f- people are diehard Golden State Warriors fans now and and – San Francisco Giants and and just you know even still with the shitty teams everyone loves the fucking Raiders and the Niners and they suck now (laughs) you know so it is a sports town but I don't feel like um you know my success or lack of success however you look at it um has had people treat me differently you know and it's it's not it's not a rarity that I get recognized as a fighter but when I do you know people are pretty chill because I think the generally when you meet a fighter they're they're pretty at least at that level, they're pretty cool, you know? So I think most people that have experience in talking to people face-to-face, other fighters, they're like, wow, that guy was really awesome. You know, that's certainly been my experience. Yeah, I find that when I spend large amounts of time in LA, I feel my sense of okayness with myself receding away from me. And I, I kind of, there's this kind of subtle uh, feeling that I am only the sum of my accomplishments. Yeah. And there's this also the subtle feeling of what's your angle? Yeah. Like if someone's kind to me or nice to me and it's not always the case, I've got friends in LA too, but there is a lot of that where I'm like, uh, uh, is this guy like networking because he wants to meet so-and-so or wants to do this thing or, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of ulterior motives going on in the town. And I think that one of the greatest antidotes to that is immersing ourselves in nature in a very deep way where we're doing something difficult and we're focused on the task at hand, whether that's hunting or going on a long hike or being in the ocean where all of a sudden all of that anxiety kind of drips away and doing psychedelics. I agree on with every, everything stated, stated all of the above for sure. Yeah. And combining that too, you know, some of my, so my wife and I have, have done some really deep journeys uh, at Wilder State Park in Santa Cruz. You know, it's it's a long, for people that don't know, it's long coastal hike. A lot of people go out there to ride horses or ride their bicycles along the coastline. 
But if you actually walk it, there's several little coves you can walk down into. And Santa Cruz is popping. Like the beach boardwalk is a fucking joke. Like it is tourist extravaganza. Oh yeah, summertime. Parking's a nightmare. You got all the rides, the funnel cakes, the euros, all this bullshit. But you make your way out to Wilder, which is not much further. And there's times where we dropped in midweek with seven grams of psilocybin each of monster dose. And we only had one other couple set foot on that cove the entire day from sunup to sundown. Like it was our beach for our experience. And most people in that town are kind of aware, you know, like we had, um, there was another time we were there on, on a lesser dose, but still in it, you know, and we had, I don't know, Deva Primal or some like super hippie shit music on. And this guy came up, you know, and he had a tie-dye shirt with a white beard and just smiled and, and nodded his head. Like, he fucking knew what Little time wink. it was. Yeah, man. He, he was like, I got you, buddy. You're good. So. Jim Fadiman. <laughs> Jim Fadiman. It was Jim Fadiman, right? Uh, he, uh, Jim Fadiman's the guy who wrote the, the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. He, he calls it a hikedelic. Hikedelic. It's, it's taking a hike while you're on psychedelics. Yeah. It's fun to move, too. It's certainly dose-dependent, but it is fun to move. We were at that beach, and... Um, a friend of mine had taken psilocybin a fairly large amount and wasn't feeling anything. And I realized it was the third flush. So if it's homegrown and I have nothing to do with this, but if it, if it was homegrown and they pulled it from the first two flushes, it tends to be stronger than the third flush. What is a flush? Flush is when the, it goes from mycelium into a fruiting body that we would call a mushroom or a toadstool, right? So it, you can pluck those up to three times. So if it's the third, it's going to have far less psilocybin content. So I had to sprint back to, well, not sprint, but run hard, uh, a 5K, basically. It was a yog. <laughs> yeah, it was a yog. Yeah, I had to run back to the car in the parking lot, grab something else for him and run back to him. And that was like one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. It was running, he was so apologetic that I had to run for him. And I was like, oh, it was fucking amazing. I was barefoot and I'm just... Run I was my, on all fours. Yeah, my feet knew exactly <laughs> where to go. Yeah, yeah, it was it was an incredible experience. I freaked out a couple along the way, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I never would have ran though in that moment. You know what I'm saying? But having like a reason and wanting us to be on the same page at the same around the same time I was like I can't just walk back. It's going to take too long. So hitting that run on a LSD was fucking powerful. Yeah. You have told me before about good drugs and bad drugs. What do you mean by that? Yes. Well, uh, let's see here. Cocaine, I would call classify as a bad drug. Mambe or dried coca leaf, a good drug. You know, the what nature provided with coca is an amazing, powerful plant. You know, tribes in the Amazon and Colombia, because it doesn't, it grows at altitude. But they they meet together sometimes up to quarterly, and they trade their medicines. So ayahuasqueros will bring in ayahuasca for the people that live in the mountains, and the mountain people will bring down coca leaf, and that's used in ceremony with ayahuasca. And it's, you know, if you put ground coca leaf in your gums, the way they use it, it's like a cup of coffee. I mean, I've fallen asleep with it in my mouth. It's a very low level, but it's an amazing tool, especially with used with other plant medicines. And certainly, you know, if you're doing it, uh, when I first started doing nighttime ceremonies, which is how they're typically done, it's very hard for me to stay awake. And there's other instruments that they bring in. Sometimes they use hape, which is a form of ground tobacco mixed with the ashes of mm, other plants. I got a hape story for you. Hape is amazing, brother. Yes. So uh, I want to hear that. But um, 
you know, I, when I was using bad drugs, I was using cocaine. I was using shitty ecstasy, not pure MDMA, which has, they're fucking light years apart for, from each other. And when people say I did MDMA and I felt like shit the next day, sorry, buddy, you got shitty MDMA. Cause if you have the pharmaceutical stuff, you feel fucking good the next day. And that's, that's kind of the rule of thumb that I liked from when Jim Fadiman was talking about, um, this lasting sense of peace and wellness you have the following day after even a microdose right? You feel fucking good the next day. And that's really been my guiding light on, is it a good drug or a bad drug? Do I feel good the next day after taking it? Or is there a hangover? Do I feel like shit? Do I feel sad in the days that come? That would qualify it as not a, not a good drug. It's a bad drug, right? So that's really my definition of good versus bad when it comes to those. Does it leave me more whole than when I started? Yeah. And how much would you say that using these substances, um, in like in various areas like i guess the question is how would you how would you recommend people use good drugs because i think that there are still bad ways to use good drugs yeah i mean well and that's it depends where you're going with that but there are there there are bad ways to use good drugs there's no doubt about that what i'll I give you i'll a, give you an example I, of of okay hoppe. okay <laughs> this is a bad way of using hoppe. <laughs> so i was at the natural foods conference in anaheim two years ago and that night i went to a party that i believe the company sambazon juices was throwing and while i was there i had a bit too much to drink but met a woman who was uh i think she was a witch I'm pretty sure but she was gorgeous and she offered me hape which i didn't know what it was this is before i had used ayahuasca um so uh, we sat down adjacent to the men's bathroom in a hallway, and she took a little blow dart gun, put the hoppe in the end of the blow dart gun, and said, breathe. So I breathed in, and she shot the hoppe up my nose, and for about five seconds, I would say that I felt like I was at the center of the universe, and then past that, the universe started spinning like Jupiter. Upon which time... She left, and I sprinted towards the men's bathroom. There was someone in the bathroom, and I vomited, projectile vomiting, in the urinal for the next 15 minutes. But you were drunk. I was drunk. So there you go. That's a good example of using a good drug in a bad way. There you go. Yeah. I I never saw the witch again. (laughs) She vanished. She left on her broom. Yeah, you know, there, there. I have many, many stories uh, before I was taught by my Native American coach, boxing coach, how to use these with respect, reverence, and intention. And that's really it. It's, it's you know, set and setting is a big one, but what do you wish to gain from this? You know, that that's another big one. Um, and how do, you, how do you go into it? You know, your mindset going into it is not just, do I feel good? Do I feel ready? It's like, no, what's the fucking reason? What do you wish to learn? That's a part of the mindset. Setting is not just your environment, like, hey, we're in this great place in nature, but you don't know everyone else that's around you, or you don't know this fucking ranger is going to come by at 10 p.m. And, and start digging through shit, you know, if you're up. Like, you, if you, you've got to know the terrain as well. And that's why I think... You know, Terrence McKenna has laid out some pretty good ground rules for going deep, which I follow. And that would be to, if you're going to do the heroic dose, do it at home in a safe place with it dark and throw some music on that has no words and listen to instrumental music and have a guide or a sitter there. You know, I think that's, those are really important because there's somebody there. If you need to talk, you can. Although anytime we're outward, 
outwardly expressing, we're not taking anything in. So if I wish to give you the fucking play-by-play like Bob Costas, I'm not receiving new information, right? So to speak as little as possible throughout the ceremony, if you're like, oh shit, what's that noise or whatever, that's what the sitter's there for. They can get the door, they can get you water, they can take you to the bathroom if you need it, that kind of thing, right? Um, And certainly somebody with experience, you know, like when Rick Doblin's doing these uh, psycho-assisted therapy for PTSD with MDMA, everyone has to have experience with the medicine, it's not, you know, you, you have to have some level of understanding and awareness of what they're going through, which means you have to have gone through it yourself. And I think that's important. I wouldn't get my mom to guide me or be a babysitter in an experience because she has nothing to fucking compare it to. Right. So choosing those things. And this is all outlined in the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide by Jim Fadiman, which is an excellent resource. And it teaches people what's appropriate use and when, you know, I've, I've, got a lot of buddies that have gotten into this stuff and they're like, fuck dude, I just, I just need so much LSD now. It's not even fun anymore. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Why? Like, what are you talking? Like literally how much are you taking? Like, well, I just, I like, I got to start with 10 hits now because they don't wait to do it every fourth day. Like if you do it three days in a row, yeah, your body will downregulate its ability to utilize that. And it's constantly trying to create homeostasis. It takes any food item, anything we put in our bodies, four days for it to clear the body. You might shit it out, but there's still cells and molecules and things in your body that's, that are being affected by that substance for up to four days. And that's why we wait every fourth day on a microdosing protocol or if you're gonna go even macro, right? So I think those are, those are key things to understand. And then, you know, really, seeing what you want to use it for. I think there's there's tools to go deep with that I prefer and there's tools that I like for celebration. So some people might say LSD should only be used for transformative work and it's not a party drug, but I would disagree. I think LSD is an amazing tool for celebration. I've used it at weddings when I don't want to drink and I don't want to hang over the next day. I can dance like a maniac, sweat, have a good time, open up my body and still sleep well and feel fucking good the next day because I got to be dad the next day. I can't be a hungover piece of shit with a three-year-old, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that uh, going back to you know your friends who want to take 10 hits every day, they should ask themselves the question, um, you know, what message am I receiving? And as Alan Watts said, when you get the message, hang up the phone. Yeah, you know, and I, well, that's, those are, there are people that are, And I see this, I've seen this quite a bit with ayahuasca, you know, at the end of the ceremony, they'll talk about, oh, I got this, I got that, I got so much, it's so beautiful, and I love it, and I love you, and I love the world, and everything is one, all is one, and infinity, and blah, 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 and all the messages we typically get. If you look at airwid.org, you can see trip reports. There's a lot of commonalities there. That's okay, but if you don't do the fucking work, you're going to get the same information the next time. And that, that happened to me. I did ayahuasca three ceremonies in a row and it kept telling me to meditate and do yoga. And the third time that it kept telling me that, I was like, I want new information. Why do you keep telling me this? And it was like, oh, I have not started yoga or meditation. And I will not get new information <laughs> right. until I start that because that was, and this isn't everyone. That's another thing I try to say. The message is for me, right? That was my homework to do that I hadn't that I hadn't done. Since adopting a meditation practice and different forms of yoga, I now get new information. And that's the goal, right? You know, uh, my sister asked me once, how many times are you going to do ayahuasca? Like, it just seems like 
it's this fucking weird thing. Like, are you going to do it the rest of your life? And I was like, I'll do it as long as it keeps giving me new information. And I heard um, Dennis McKenna talking about ayahuasca on the last Joe Rogan experience he was on. And it was beautiful. He said he still felt like a baby in ayahuasca's arms. And this is a guy who's done it hundreds of times. He goes yearly. I think, um, I think there's a website where you can sign up to go on a trip with him, which would be fucking amazing to get to trip with Dennis. Will you bring me into a situation when you are on a journey and you're receiving this information? For people who haven't done ayahuasca, that seems kind of weird. Like, is it a phone call that you're getting? Or how does it like <laughs> so so for Kyle, you gotta you gotta meditate. Those hamstrings are a little tight. You think you need to do some yoga as well. Over and out, mother and ayahuasca. <laughs> Roger. Uh, it's different for everyone. You know, there are some people um, speak to beings or if you get, I know, this is going to sound fucking weird if you haven't done it. They speak to, um, you know, if you enter into a visionary state, it's like having a dream, but you're awake. And in the vision, you can see you, you're, you're living it. You're not watching it on a movie. You're fucking living it in 3D, right? And you may come across uh, animals or beings or, or angels or whatever the thing is that could have information for you. Everything that I've seen in my visions um, has been profound, but it hasn't necessarily told me things with a voice. Like there's no voice saying, Kyle, you need to meditate more. It's never like that. I just have this knowing, this deep understanding like, oh, that's the answer. And other times, often, I'll see in fucking bright gold letters a word like discipline. And then I know like, oh, and I know exactly what that word means to me. Like I have not been disciplined on my diet. I have not been disciplined on my training or my breath work or the things that I need to do to be the best version of myself. Why do you talk about it so much? It is the first time I did ayahuasca, you know, I had, I had had some really deep mushroom experiences and, and changed my life in a profound way, but ayahuasca is kind of in a league of its own, you know, when, when done correctly with the right people and the experience just fucking floored me. Like I had no idea this existed. You know, I would have wanted to literally stand on top of a mountaintop and shout it to the world, like do ayahuasca, everyone needs to do this. And then over time I realized like this work is for me to do and for others who are called to the medicine, you know, it's not for everyone and that's okay. And so as I do the work and improve my own life, that message can be one that includes ayahuasca, but also all the other takeaways that people can gravitate towards and grab a hold of, because not everyone can fly to the Amazon. Not everyone can afford it. Not everyone has the time to do that. And not everyone knows where to go, you know? So I think there's, it's, it, you know, ultimately it is for me, but I, I enjoy talking about it because there's still that factor when I do it. And I'm like, I can't fucking believe this stuff is on planet earth. Like we go through earth with fucking blinders on. You yeah. re rewatch the matrix after that. And you're like, these guys know they fucking know they know. And it's not, it's not word for word. It's not identical to, to our modern world. I don't think we're living in a simulation, but so much of the fucking shit that as we were talking about on it like there's things that appear conspiracy to people that want to just put blinders on and go through life and not it's it's like joey pantaleone in in uh in the matrix he's like i know what you're thinking why did i take the red pill 
You know, like <laughs> I want to eat this steak and know that it's a steak. Yeah. I don't want to wonder what a computer simulation did to come up with the flavor of this steak. Like he wanted ignorance is bliss. Yep. He didn't want to fucking know. Right. And there's others that do want to know. They do want to reveal what's within at the very least, you know, and, and so much has shifted before me from that. Like I look at the world differently, you know, and one example would be understanding that whatever soul or consciousness I have is in fucking everything. The plants have it. The plants are conscious. They're fucking alive and awake. And I know that's off-putting to a lot of people, whether they're atheist or diehard Christian and believe that man is special and separate from nature and that we're in the image of God and that we're fucking completely different and better than everything else. Not my experience and not the experience of a lot of people that break through and get that. And so I do look at the environment differently. I look at plants differently. We've got, there's one thing my wife spends too much money on. It's fucking house plants. It's, but it's a cool thing. You know, it's like going into a little garden when we walk inside and they're all named and we know when they need to be watered and there's a deeper connection to them because they are alive and conscious. So yeah. we treat them as such. I like what you said about just the, the feeling of awe that is that, that you get when you realize that ayahuasca exists. I feel the same way about octopus. <laughs> like you go dive underwater and you see an octopus, those things can change not only their color, but their texture. Imagine if that animal lived on land. Like imagine if there was this little eight-legged creature cruising around the audit office and it could blend in with the couch and make itself smooth as that le leather. And then it could climb on the microphone and make itself look like a microphone. Like, they're aliens. Yeah, and there yeah. are so many aliens here on planet Earth. And I think that it is important that someone like yourself talks about psychedelics if, if for no other reason than to dispel misinformation. Yeah, hundred percent. And I've had bad experiences. My bad experiences included alcohol and the wrong setting. Always included alcohol in the wrong setting. I've never done that. You know, so <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But but and and through experience we learn, right? So I mean, and that's something I let people know. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of older people in California before we moved that are looking for pain management that want to get into using cannabis. And they they'll tell me you know, Kyle, I, I, I would be down, but I ate a cookie and it was the fucking worst experience of my life. And I'm like, yeah. So if somebody said alcohol is actually good for you and they wanted you to try something, you wouldn't slam a bottle of Jack Daniels and then say never touching alcohol again because you know what the fucking bottle of Jack is, right? I think now that it's becoming recreational in a lot of states and things of that nature, it's it's better regulated and we can actually fine tune what the dose should be, but that can be medicine for a lot of people. Right. <clears throat> so I, I offer that to people who have had a quote unquote bad trip from when they were 16 years old in a shitty situation, didn't map it out, didn't plan it out, didn't set an intention and just wanted to get high. Yeah. Shit's going to go wiry there, but it can be, um, you know, you can take a second look at it, you know, with new eyes because there's, there is a lot of power in, in that medicine work. And I think that it's truly transformative when you bring that to the table, the level of respect and the intention of these are the things I want to work on. There's very few things in life where we can pull the curtain back and whatever is going on inside is revealed to us. Very few things. Do you know why witches ride broomsticks? No. You mentioned the, the witch that I had my experience with. 
So in medieval times, um, healers would use ergot. You know what ergot is? Yes, and that's what uh, ergot is the fungus that went onto the barley and rye in Greece when they would make kikion. Yes, so it can uh, have the impact, the effects of LSD. But ergot makes you um, can make you very sick if you take it orally. So what these healers would do back in medieval times is they would take uh, the ergot and they would boil it in a pot. And they would use a broomstick to stir the pot. And then they would insert the ergot into a cavity that is beneath your legs. The poop chute. The vagina or the poop chute. I used to keister ecstasy all the time in college. So the, the origins of why witches ride broomsticks is because we were putting the ergot up the vajayjays and the poop shooters and they were making us high and we were seeing witches. That's pretty fucking cool. Isn't that wild? Yeah. I like stories like that. Like where does mind your, mind your P's and Q's come from? Where does it come from? It's, I think it's old England when a drunk would be at the bar, they'd say, mind your P's and Q's, mind your pints and quarts, drink your fucking beer and stop talking to other people. Like Stay that. out of other people's business. I like right? that. Um, when you were in college, you studied sociology Communication, communications, psychology, a little bit of philosophy. And you are using all of those now in your current career. Yeah. Oddly enough, I actually quit my senior year because, uh, you know, I, the only reason I was taking, I w wanted to do business at ASU. And then of course my math was subpar as it was a lot of things was, and to stay eligible for football, my uh, major kept changing until finally they're like, yo, we got it. Bachelor of Interdisciplinary Studies. It's basically two minors to equal one major. And so it's, it is truly a fucking basket weaving degree. And it's the modern day basket weaving degree. And um, I had taken the vast majority of the courses that I liked. I loved sociology and communications. I loved especially psychology and think, figuring out what makes people tick and um, a bit of philosophy. You know, I, I liked diving into Carl Jung and different people like that. But um, ultimately, you know, I, philosophy, I, I learned less from just from the fact that uh, they, they basically, you know, the, the guidance counselor told me, like, you can be a fucking philosophy uh, teacher in junior college if you get that degree. So it's like, OK, I don't want to do that. Let's focus on these other things. And, and calm and social were the main two for the degree. Um, but by the time it was my senior year, when I finished football, I realized ma the majority of my classes were actually BIS classes. They were Bachelor of Dis Interdisciplinary Studies courses on how you would sell yourself to a potential fucking <laughs> employer. And it was the fucking dumbest shit on earth. Like you had to write papers on how this degree was better than an actual degree in communication. I didn't fucking believe that for one second. You know, nor did I think I would I would end up in podcasting or anything else for that matter. I just thought I don't want to fucking have a desk job and I don't want to do this. And I would really like to be an athlete still, you know, so there was this gap where I was extremely depressed. I didn't want to go back to school. I was I knew I was done with football and I felt like a fucking rat on the wheel using a treadmill and lifting weights by myself as opposed to having a team of fucking dudes around me and one of the best strength coaches in the world right there screaming in my ear 
two inches deep at Kingsbury, you know, like the, that, I missed all that. And fighting really gave me that, you know, it was an outlet for my anger and a lot of shit that I had going on that I, a lot of work that I hadn't done on myself. Um, and thankfully kind of everything fell into place during my fight career. You know, the thirst for knowledge, I, I realized if I was playing video games and not fucking reading that I was missing out on something that could help me potentially in my fight career. So I read more post-college in my fight career than I ever did prior to that in that's college smart. and before. And that's really, you know, how I have the position now is, is from that thirst for knowledge. And still, you know, when you get a piece of that, you want more. And that's, it's, it's similar to people that work with plant medicines. You get a taste of awakening, a taste of revealing what's really going on inside. You see some transformation happen and you want more of that. The critical element is, you know, grounding that into fucking reality. It's taking it and doing it, you know, and, and one of my favorite quotes from Bruce Lee is it's not enough to know we must do. So all this shit's cool. You can read about it all you want, whatever it is with health and wellness, whatever cool new workout, that kind of stuff. But if you don't try it and implement it, it's worthless. You're just the guy with facts. You're not the guy with knowledge and experience. Yeah. True not. wisdom takes experience in doing. Yeah. To embody that. I think it's admirable that you chose to learn these transferable skills while you were in your fight career. Um, I'm from the surf world and I see a lot of professional surfers who get a ton of accolades at a very young age. They're getting paid six figures by sponsors to fly around the world and, and live the dream. And then one year they don't get re-signed and all of a sudden they are a 32 year old with very few life skills and they really have no idea what to do. Um, you know, I have a, a friend who's a firefighter in Hawaii and <clears throat> it's on the North shore of Oahu and right below the fire station, which is on the beach, there's this slab where a lot of homeless people hang out. And my buddy's fire chief came up to him one time when they were looking at this one homeless guy and he was sitting in his own vomit and piss and was not in a good place. And he looked at, he pointed at him and he said, you see that guy right there? He was on the cover of Surfer Magazine in 1978. Damn. And I think that that's probably a similar story for a lot of fighters. Yeah. Um, who And I would just want to get your perspective on that. And because I do think that you're right in, in the fact that you learned those skills while you were fighting and now you're in the position that you are because of that. Yeah. And it, you know, for me, it changed so much. I knew I needed to do something else. There had to be something post fight career. And I didn't want to go back to school. Uh, I thought about coming, becoming a firefighter, uh, almost went into the big oil industry as a pipeline inspector. Um, you know, there, there was, there was different avenues, but ultimately, um, there was that fucking desire. Like I saw the writing on the wall. It's not like I was raking it in. I had a second job the whole time I was fighting because I didn't make much money. And um, even when I was winning, I wasn't making a lot of money. So when I was losing, I was, that gets cut in half, you know? Um, and I've seen, you know, guys that were older, like Dan Severn, guys that have been in the game from, from the early UFC days that were fighting well into their fucking 50s. And I'm like, not even thinking of brain damage, just thinking like that would suck balls to be the Ric Flair of fighting, you know, and not that there's anything wrong with Ric Flair. He gets to do that in pro wrestling and he's certainly taken his toll. We're going to have him on the on it podcast, which will be dope, but I didn't want that kind of long, you know, longevity in the sport, you know, and, and 
truly when you factor in brain damage, which is happening, then it, then it makes it even that much more apparent. Like we have to have plan B in place and plan C in case plan B doesn't work out. Um, but it wasn't until going on the Rogan experience that I really considered uh, podcasting, you know? So it, it's, it, it can be enough to focus on your passions and not know where that's going to take you. I think a lot of people do the easy thing and just try to make money and just try to do something that's safe and stable and secure. And, and that's not their fault. Mostly that's brought on to us from our parents who want the best for their kids. Like my parents told me countless times, like, uh, you're going to get a job in sales and you'll make so much money and blah, blah, blah. Or you can go to wall street. Or you can do this, you can do that. And, and, um, none of that shit ever seemed fulfilling to me, you know, but I did have a thirst to learn more about the things that mattered to me. And I think it's okay to do that. It's okay to fucking want to learn art or music and be broke for a long ass time doing something you care about, making money on the side as a barista or whatever the fucking case may be. That's okay. That's okay too. Because if you stick with it long enough, it will fucking pan out. Yeah. And surrounding yourself with people who you can learn from. I think that's one of the great things of podcasting is that you are now getting paid to learn from people. Yeah. And to have the, the one-on-one conversations with really dope guests like yourself, man. I mean, like that's, there's magic in that. Uh, I think Chris Ryan had said this, you know, he's podcasting for two reasons. One, selfishly to learn from these people, to become friends with them. And then two, to share that message with the world. And that resonated with me a ton when I first started getting into this, because it's, it is, there is the selfish component where like, yeah, I really do want to fucking know what you're all about. I want to learn from you, you know? And I think that's been amazing because even with a guy like Rob Wolf, I've read uh, the paleo solution and wired to eat is a book that I'm constantly telling people to read. But you know, I, the first time I podcast with him, it was, it was the 20 minutes after off air that I started taking shit tons of notes because then he just got the guy opened up to me and he was like, you know, you should have on Ryan Fristner, you know, you should have, on, and he just fucking went down this list of people I could learn more from. And that spawned, you know, one seed plants fucking 10 more. You know, and I've seen it work that way. And it's it's truly a fucking awesome deal. Yeah, I don't yet know what podcasting is because it is so new. Like there isn't really one way to do a podcast. It's this kind of amorphous, enigmatic like thing where like, whoa, this is, I, I've seen a lot of people change their behavior because of podcasting. It's strange that in this time where we're told that people need it quicker, faster, you know, sharper, you can have an hour, two hour long conversation with someone and just by you, know, you giving an honest testimony about your experience, that is one of the most persuasive forms of communication. Yeah, we, you know, you, a lot of Chris Ryan's work is, is anthropological and talking about things that went on in our past and in the, the near distant past, you know, like it's not that fucking long ago, right? But this art of storytelling is so powerful. That's one of the ways that we communicated with each other around a fucking campfire for eons. And then now we see make-believe versions of that with reality TV. And it's it feels fake because it is fucking fake. It is scripted. It is bullshit. We're seeing them painted in a way the camera and the producers want them to paint them. But in podcasting, you can sense the level of realness that's there, especially in longer forms. But what's cool about podcasting too is that 
all forms are working right now. The fucking 10 minute, 15 minute podcast is just super quick bullet points in your face. People love that. The three hour long conversation that Joe Rogan has, people love that and everything in between, right? So it's, it's a rad thing to be a part of. Uh, I think so too. Uh, well, I'm going to let you go soon, but don't think I'm not going to get some good fitness and nutrition advice before <laughs> I do, because <laughs> I will admit that being a surfer, I have been, uh, I think I'm healthy and I train and try and eat good food, but have been slightly combative towards the human optimization movement um, for reasons that I can't fully define, but I'm trying to shed that layer and be an, an open book uh, and learn as much as I can. So for someone who is you know, curious and wants to take the next step into health and, and diet and fitness, what, are you, what do you think are the big questions that they should ask themselves and first steps that they should take? Yeah, I think the first thing is to address um, what are you eating? You know, when, how often, what are you eating? You know, and I think Wired to Eat by Rob Wolf, The Keto Reset Diet by Mark Sisson are excellent resources. Um, both of those books focus on carbohydrate content. You know, and, and the truth is, uh, you know, we live in the, we're the fattest fucking country we've been in a long time. Type 2 diabetes is soaring, especially among children. Uh, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia, all, all these issues of cognitive dysfunction. That's largely considered type 3 diabetes now. They all have to do with elevated blood sugar, right? So in Wired to Eat, you know, he paints a picture of what a ketogenic diet looks like. But more importantly, he teaches you how to fine tune which carbohydrates are right for you because most Americans are mutts. So it's not enough to just get an ancestry report and say, everyone that I have, you know, half of my family's from Italy and half my family's from Germany, so I can eat Italian and German food. It doesn't fucking work that way. If you have, you're one of five siblings, every one of you has different genes. Every one of you has different requirements and carb tolerances. So when you can figure that out, that, that helps with inflammation, joint pain, cognitive function or dysfunction, and it can mitigate all of these issues I've just mentioned from type two diabetes onward to brain health. And when you can figure that out, that gives you sustained energy, that gives you lasting energy, that mitigates pain and stress in the body. And a lot of these issues come from that. They've even looked at, uh, I forget, I think it was Thomas Seafried looked at cancer as a metabolic theory. So a lot of these cancers now can be helped with a ketogenic diet. And I'm not saying that it doesn't cure all cancers. That's certainly not the case. And this is, it's all relatively new. Um, in terms of things like that, but paying attention to carbohydrates, which is right, which is not carbohydrate backloading or targeted keto, where you have a little bit of carbs with your, with your workout for those that are, uh, more into high intensity intervals, you know, mixed martial artists, football players, things like that. There's a right way and a wrong way to do anything. You know, if you cut out all carbs, that's a fucking problem. Um, but mitigating that and really paying attention to those, those numbers and then switching to fucking organic food is, is a no brainer for everyone. People want to figure out the cheapest way they can eat. That's fine. Figure out the cheapest, best food you can get, right? It's very rare that I'll buy grass-fed filet mignon. That costs a lot of money. But I can damn sure afford $5.99 grass-fed ground beef at Sprouts, right? So there's ways that I can have better quality foods for less money. And it's very important. It's not only important for the environment, which is fucking being largely fucked up from that, Um it's important for us. What we put in our bodies has a huge impact. Pesticides and herbicides are no joke. 
glyphosate's in fucking everything now. And that's not only fucking up the environment, it fucks up our, our microbiome. It's, it's a carcinogen. It's a big deal. So I think making those shifts can really help people. And, and, um, you know, there's, there's a wealth of books. I think whatever, whatever the case is, you know, whatever it is, like, I want to, I want to optimize my brain or I want to uh, lose weight or I want to uh, move better. Having a thirst for that knowledge and going down the rabbit hole. That's, that's, that's what it takes. Yeah. You know? And I, I think it's also important to note that these are not abstract concepts that you're talking about. Most of us have close friends or family who have suffered from neurodegenerative diseases or obesity or you know heart attacks. This is stuff that really affects our lives. And um, I respect you for the work that you're doing. I, I can tell that it comes from a genuine place and I appreciate you sharing the knowledge. Yeah, brother. I'll leave you with one quote. It's one of my favorite quotes from Paul Check. Sooner or later, your health will be your number one concern. Marinate on that. Sooner or later. And either fucking make it your concern now or it will be on your deathbed. Boom. It's a great place to end. Thank you so much. Fuck yeah, brother. Thank you. That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song called Killers by Pinstripe Love Seat. These guys listen to the podcast. They sent me some tunes, and I will link to their band in the show notes below this episode. Also, if you are part of a band and you want your music played, you can email it to info at kyle.surf, and I would love to play it. Also, if you want to send me a little message to play at the beginning of this podcast, like Robert did from Sweden, you can use the Voice Memos app on your phone. Just click Click record, tell me who you are, where you're listening from, something you're psyched on these days, and you can email it from your phone to info at kyle.surf. Super simple, don't overthink it, and I love hearing from all of you. Once again, this is an ad-free podcast, so if you have 5, 10, 15, maybe even 20 bucks a month to spare, which is just crazy talk, I know, uh, please click the link below Kyle's description and donate on Patreon. You can also head over to my website, kyle.surf, and click the Patreon link there. Also on my website, I have a book club. That's where all my documentaries are. That's where I have a monthly email, all kinds of good stuff over on kyle.surf. And with that... Get outside, get in the water, give someone a high five, get in touch with Kyle on Instagram, and I hope that you enjoy this song called Killers by Pinstripe Loveseat. See you soon.